O Lord our God, you light our you enlighten our lamp and lighten our darkness. Your way is perfect and your word always proves true. You are a shield for all who take refuge in you. So would you enlighten us now by the power of your spirit that we may know and keep your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to Matthew chapter 2. I know I put in the bulletin Jeremiah 26, but um, I was down with a cold all week, so Jeremiah 26 did not take shape the way I was hoping it would. Uh, So we're going to go to Matthew 2 instead, verses 1 through 12. Uh, So boys and girls, if you're trying to answer the questions at the end of the sermon and waiting for Jeremiah to appear, um, he's not going to appear. Those questions will not work for this sermon. Um, So I'm sorry about that, boys and girls. I'll try to be better next week. Um, So hopefully, Lord willing, we'll get to Jeremiah next week, but I'd like for us to consider Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 together this morning. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, The title of this sermon is Seeking the King. We find wise men coming to seek the king. Um, This is Matthew's first post-Christmas story, so it's still a good text for us to consider post-Christmas, maybe with Christmas still a little bit on our minds and hearts. Um, But Matthew recounts the events that took place following that Christmas, following the birth of our Lord, following the account that he gives to us, um, that wonderful reminder that we had from Matthew's gospel that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, that the king of glory has come to be among his people. And we read about that wonderful announcement that was made to Joseph, reminding him of who this child would be, um, and wonderfully announcing the, the glory of his coming. And we saw that all set in the context by Matthew of the covenant community. Um, that God had sent his word through the ages to Abraham, to David, had preserved that line, preserved his promise until he brought forth from one of the sons of David, a son of David. 
And that, that report had been made to the covenant people, that child that had been born as a child of promise, both to Abraham and to David. But now Matthew turns to those who are outside of the covenant community. He reminds us of this, birth, this great birth announcement that was made not to people inside the covenant community like Joseph and Mary, but those who are outside of the covenant community, Gentiles from the East. And what Matthew is meaning to do through the course of the gospel is to talk about the king and that this king who is the king of Israel, the king that was promised to David, is more than just a Davidic king. He's the king over all. He's the one who was promised who will be great, not just in Israel, but to the ends of the earth. And when we see that in that prophecy of Micah that, that Matthew recounts to us in the words of the chief priests. Um, and so I want to think about this passage in light of that wonderful promise that the king who's coming is going to be king not only of Israel, but king over all. And as we see these wise men coming to seek the king. Um, and so as we think about the king who's been born, I want to think about it in three ways together. Uh, the king who's been born, the king who is sought, and the king who is found. But this king is the king over all. He's the king who's been born, he's the king who is sought, and he's the king who is found. Um, in fulfillment of the prophecy that God made through Micah. The king is born. Um, it's wonderful to be reminded once again that the, the birth of Christ did not come unheralded in the world. Um, if we read Luke's account, we read of the angels bringing the wonderful news to the shepherds in the field. This, this great event cannot go unannounced in the world. Um, the angels announce it to the shepherds in Luke's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, we, we read of how Gentiles from the east became aware <laughs> Of the birth of Christ. It's a wonderful reminder to us that this great event that has happened in the world doesn't go unannounced. Really, it can't go unannounced. Right? It has to be known in the world that this great event has taken place. And God makes it known to these, to these magi who are from the east. Um, we're not told much about them. Um, we, we don't know much about magi. These, these men appear to be some kind of combination between astronomers and astrologers. They're people who study the stars, who know the stars, who make some kind of scientific study of them, but then also use that scientific study to try to predict things, uh, to try to know things, to try to see if there's meaning that they can read in the stars. Um, and, and something very unusual happens in the midst of their study. This star appears that tells them a king has been born to the Jews. Now, at this point, we may accuse Matthew of not being a very good storyteller because we have all kinds of questions that we would like answered at this point. Um, how does a star tell you that? That's my question, boys and girls. How do you look at a star in the sky and it tells you there's been a king born and tells you where to go looking for that particular king? I don't know how stars do that. Um, somehow the wise men knew, but Matthew doesn't tell us. And why doesn't Matthew tell us? Well, because this isn't a story ultimately about stars or about wise men. This is a story about Jesus. He's at the center of the story. Um, and so Matthew's not so concerned with telling us how they found their way to Jesus. Um, he's concerned telling us that they found their way to Jesus. That somehow it became clear to them that a king had been born. The one who had been born who was king of the Jews. And they were wise enough to know that the capital city of the Jews was Jerusalem. 
And so if you want to go looking for a king, you probably go looking for a king in the royal city. And that's what they begin to do. They, they begin to look for Jesus. Uh, they begin to look for this king who has been born to his people. And we read about that um, in verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he, we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, they might have expected this big event that was news to them by way of the stars would be known in Jerusalem. And we, we might imagine their surprise at thinking they were going to come and find the birth of a king, which was usually an occasion for much celebrating, um, an occasion for much notoriety going on, but to come and find that nobody is really celebrating this. No one seems to know about this. And as they start asking questions, um, it causes something of an uproar. Right, we read in, in verse 3, uh, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Right, this news eventually gets to the king. This news gets around. It gets around all of Jerusalem. Everybody begins to talk about this event that these men are talking about. Um, and you notice how they put their question. Where is he? Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews. Uh, there, there's no doubt in their mind this has happened. Right? They, they don't second guess themselves as they come in and say, well, as I might have been inclined to do and say, well, maybe I didn't read the stars so accurately. No, they're convinced that this event has happened. Where is he? He's been born. We saw his star when it rose. We've come to worship him. There, there's no amount of doubt in their mind at all. This is just the fact. A king has been born. Where is he? Right, and this is, this is the fundamental thing that Matthew wants to lay down, I think, in his gospel. These events are true. These events are things that really happened. These events are things that are not up for question or debate. A king has been born. The question that Matthew leaves us to deal with is, how do you react to that truth? Right? That, that's, that's a theme that he wants to send up in his gospel as a whole. It's a, it's a theme or a motif you continue to see in the gospel of Matthew. Here is the king. What are you going to do about him? Here is the Messiah. How are you going to react to him? This is the truth. It's not up for debate or question. Where are you in your relationship to him? The king is born. That's the, the, the inescapable fact that Matthew leaves us with, right? He starts with that inescapable fact. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod, and these men come and say, where is he? The question that leaves not just for those in the story, but for those like us who are reading and hearing this story, he's been born, what are we going to do? How are we going to react? Uh, and, and the story beautifully unfolds. It shows that the king is born and that the king is sought. He's sought by worshipers. That's what these, these men have come to do. These wise men from the east, they say, we saw his star when it rose and we've come to find him. We've come to worship him. Right? That, that's what they are seeking to do. They are seeking the king in his royal city so that they can worship him. 
That's how they react to this reality. That's how they react to this truth. They are seeking him, that they might worship him. Um, And it's interesting to see the reaction to these seeking worshipers. Right, the word gets to Herod, who is the king, and he's troubled. Now, why is Herod troubled? He's troubled because he's the king of the Jews. Right, when you hear news that someone has been born king of the Jews and you thought you were king of the Jews, that's upsetting. Right, that was the official title he'd been given by the Roman government, the king of the Jews. Um, And he was an unpopular king. He was an unpopular king because he had replaced a a popular line of kings in Judah. Uh, Not from the line of David, but from the line of Judas Maccabeus, who was a great liberator of uh, God's people. Um, it's It's the liberation that led to the rededication of the temple that's celebrated at Hanukkah. Um, that celebration of the Maccabean revolt that, that set them free from their liberators that restored the temple. And the Hasmonean dynasty that came from the Maccabeans was very popular. Well, Herod replaced them. And people hated Herod. Um, because Herod liked to go around and say, well, I'm a Jew just like you are. And they would say, no, you're not. You're an Edomite. You're a descendant from Esau. You can't claim to be a Jew like us. And then he thought, well, maybe I can make myself popular by marrying into the Hasmonean line. Maybe if I take a wife from the Hasmonean dynasty, that'll make me more popular. Well, that didn't work. They still hated him. And what he realized was he'd now brought in the popular line and set up a whole family of people who might be after his throne. And so he was a, a crafty, power-mad kind of guy. And he had now set up in his own home possible rivals to the throne. And as as life went on, he became increasingly paranoid of who might be trying to replace him and take his throne. And over the course of his life, we're told by historians that he killed his wife, he killed her grandfather, he killed her mother, he killed two of her brothers, and he killed three of his own sons in order to protect his own throne. And so this is not a happy thing to hear that Herod is now troubled. Because we know that when Herod is troubled, people die. And that's probably why when Herod is troubled, all of Jerusalem is troubled with him. Because what they're hearing is a possible rival to Herod's throne, which is really a possible rival to Roman rule. And how is that going to work out for us, Herod knows in a sense that they are bringing word, these wise men are bringing word of a far worse threat to his throne than a Hasmonean king. They're bringing the threat of a Davidic king. Because notice when Herod wants to find out more about this person, notice how he puts the question to the religious leaders. We, we might read right over it in verse four, but Herod assembles the chief priests and the scribes of the people and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Notice that no one has said anything about the Christ to this point. No one has mentioned Messiah. The wise men come looking for the king of the Jews. But Herod knows what he's hearing when he hears that the one who's been born king of the Jews. 
has to be the Christ, the Messiah, not just a Davidic king, but the Davidic king that God's people are looking for and waiting for. That someone like this could only be that personage from the scriptures and from history. And so he assembles the religious leaders to say, now where is this figure, where is the Christ to be born? That's who they're talking about. Where is he to be born? And so he assembles his experts. He assembles the chief priests. This probably means the current high priest, the retired high priests, and those leaders who are potential future high priests. So, so the, the, the priestly order, the sort of religious nobility, we might say. Those are the chief priests. He also gathers the scribes. We might think of them more as seminary professors. People who've been trained in religion, trained in letters, trained in the scriptures. He calls them together and says, where is the Christ to be born? And you notice that they don't have any trouble answering that question. Um, That's not a tough question for them. Um, When he gathers them all together and inquires where the Christ was to be born, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And then they quote Micah from chapter 5. There's no, there's no question about where he's to be born. They know that, you know, it's, it's sort of as this they say, I thought you were going to bring us in and ask us a hard question. You need to gather all the religious experts. Everybody knows this. This is kind of first day stuff. The, the Christ is to be born in Bethlehem. Five miles down the road. That's, that's where he's supposed to be born. You have any other questions? Right, it's not hard. Everybody knows because the prophet spoke clearly. And so everybody knows where to seek the king who's been born king of the Jews, where to seek the Christ, where Messiah would be born. They know exactly. There's actually two Bethlehems, and so they actually know which one one of the two, Bethlehem and Judah. There's no question about any of this. There's no question where to go. But notice who doesn't have any interest in seeking the king. Right, Herod wants to find him, to kill him. Herod seeks him as an enemy. The wise men want to seek him so they might worship him, so they might serve him. But I think Matthew also wants us to notice who does not seek the king in this passage. It's the king's own people. There's not a mention of a single person in Jerusalem or a single religious leader that says to themselves like the shepherds did, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's been told to us. Apparently all these religious leaders come and they say, oh, where's the Christ to be born? Bethlehem. And then they fold up their Micah and they go. And they go back to their temple and they go back to their scriptures And they go back to everything that was pointing them to Christ and they miss him entirely. There's no mention that anyone in all of Jerusalem or any of the religious leaders seek him at all. And that's kind of a tragedy in this text. It's a tragedy that's, I think, encapsulated in John's gospel and he said he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Here come Gentiles saying, the one who's been born, he's king of the Jews. He's been born five miles down the road and nobody can be troubled to go see. 
Even though this one should not have troubled Jerusalem, given what Micah said, this should have encouraged all of Jerusalem. We should have expected them to read, you know, Herod was troubled, but all of Jerusalem rejoiced because of what Micah had said would be true of this ruler who was born. Right, oftentimes the New Testament writers quote part of the Old Testament to remind us the whole of what that Old Testament passage said. Because Micah said a lot more than just that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. That prophecy goes on in Micah chapter two to say, um, one who is coming who will be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from of ancient days, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. You are trading Herod for Messiah who will shepherd in strength, who will shepherd in justice, who will bring peace to the people and they hear that and they're troubled because they know that an unhappy Herod makes for an unhappy Jerusalem. That an unhappy Roman empire leads to an unhappy Jerusalem. It sort of reminds me of the times of Samson when the, Jude, when the men of Judah came to Samson and as he's troubling the Philistines, they say, what are you doing? Don't you know there are rulers? It's just been, they've just given themselves over to, to Philistine rule. So much so that now these men of Judah are coming and saying, you yeah, know, the Philistines are just our rulers. You're causing trouble for us, Samson. And that seems to be all that the people can think at this point. This just means trouble for us. Another rebel king causing Roman trouble. And missing the fact that this is not a rebel pretender to David's throne. This is the Christ. This is the one who comes to be God with us and God for us to bring his people peace. And it's none of his own people that seek him. And what that further shows us is Matthew's whole point is there are only three ways that you can react to the king when he comes. The king has come, he's born, how are you going to deal with him? Well, he's going to be sought. He's going to be sought by enemies. He's going to be sought by worshipers. And people are going to greet his coming with a certain amount of uninterest. And you know, that's still the same way Jesus is, is responded to in the world now. People respond to him either with hostility or apathy or fealty. Now, I know, boys and girls, that those are some big words, so I'm going to try to unpack them as we go along. And if I don't do a good job, you can come ask me after church what they mean. Um, everybody greets Jesus either with hostility or apathy or fealty. They greet him with hostility. That's how Herod greets him. When Herod hears about him, he wants to find him so that he can kill him. He doesn't want to submit to him. He doesn't want to submit to his rule. He doesn't want to lose his own little throne over his own little kingdom. And that's how I think Jesus comes to a lot of people. Because he comes to all of us and he claims to be king of our lives. And he says, you know, you're going to have to renounce your own will and do my will. We'll talk more about that tonight, Lord willing. But you know, you have to say to the Lord when he comes as king, thy will be done. You have to submit yourself to his kingdom. What does that do? It threatens our little kingdoms that we've built. Because I like to think of myself as the ruler of my own life and I don't like someone else coming in and telling me how I have to live my life. 
He's, he's a threat to the little kingdoms that we set up. And so often he's greeted with hostility. We don't want Jesus as our king. We want to be our own king, our own queen. We want to rule our own life and our own destiny. And so Jesus is often met with hostility. And Jesus is often met with a certain amount of apathy. Apathy, boys and girls, just means you don't really care one way or the other. You don't really care one way or the other. That's kind of how the the religious leaders greet him. They don't really seem to care one way or another whether this announcement might be true, whether the king might actually have come. Um, And it sort of blows me away that this, this is supposedly happening five miles down the road. Right? This isn't like far off. You'd have to go on a great quest to find him. It's, it's a little walk, mostly downhill. Um, but they just can't be troubled. Just don't, couldn't care less. I think of that every time Christmas is over and people have sung all these Christmas songs that so many people love that speak about joy and peace and angels announcing the birth of a king and someone who will ransom captive Israel and that the nails and spears will pierce him through. And they they sing it, they seem to like it, and then when Christmas is over, they fold it up and they walk away and they do whatever else comes. They put it away like they put away the tree and the lights. There's there's no interest in looking further to find out who is this person about whom we still sing songs 2,000 years later. What does it mean that he ransoms captives? What does his cross represent? There's just no interest. He's greeted with hostility or apathy or he's greeted with fealty. Now, fealty, boys and girls, is a word we don't use much anymore because it means the proper honor and obedience that subjects render to their king. Um, Because we don't have kings very much around us anymore, we don't talk much about fealty, but that's what it means. Faithful service to your true king. Being a faithful subject of your true king. And that's what we see in the wise men. That's what we see in the wise men when the king is not just sought, but is found by them. The wise men give us an example of what fealty, faithfulness to the king should look like. And we see that when the king is found. Right? Because no one else presses on to find him except for the wise men who press on to find him. Because they've not yet found him and they've not yet done what they've come to do, which is to worship the king. That's what they've come to do. That's why they're so ecstatic when they see the star again and it leads them to Bethlehem, right? After they listened to the king, we read in verse nine, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, right? They had originally seen his star rise and that somehow communicated them that Jesus was born, and now they see that same star again, and it begins to lead them. This is something new that the star hadn't done before. Now again, we can say, Matthew, why don't we have more details here? How does a star lead you to a house where you find Jesus? I don't know. But when they saw that same star that had led them this far, they knew that that star was going to lead them 
to the king that they sought. And how do they respond? They rejoice. They're filled with exceedingly great joy because they're being led to do the very thing that their heart wants to do. Um, and th- this is sort of the great, the great first promise that's made to those who seek the king. That those who seek will find, and in the finding, they'll be filled with great joy. That's, that's one of the tragedies of those who are hostile or apathetic in this passage, is that they miss the great joy that would have come from seeking the king and finding him. And that's wonderfully promised in this passage. Those who seek the king will find joy in finding him. Because they rejoice with great joy, they follow the star, and they find Jesus. And going to the house where they saw the child with Mary, his mother, they fell down and worshipped him. Um, I'm amazed at the faith of the wise men. Because I can see how if you were in the east and you thought you were going to find this great king that had been born, you'd have been expecting this great fanfare, you'd have been expecting to go to a palace, find him in, a, in an impressive place, but you find the exact opposite. You find him in an unimpressive place, in an unimpressive house, with an unimpressive family. The very ordinary baby in a very ordinary family with a teenage mother caring for this child. And still, they fall down and worship him. The humble circumstances that surround him don't detract them from the reality they've seen. They've seen that not with their eyes, but with the eyes of faith. They see Jesus and they know him to be who he is, the king. And not just the king, but the divine king who is worthy of their worship. Because they don't just find him, they worship him. That takes a lot of faith to see in this baby the king and savior of the world and worship him with the honor due his name. And, and that's the second promise that comes to those who seek the king, seeking to show him faithfulness, seeking to honor him, is that you'll see him for who he is. By the gift of the Holy Spirit, they saw this baby for who he really was. They saw Jesus for who he really was, the king of the world, their king, and their God with them. And they fall down to worship him. That's a wonderful thing that God promises that those who seek the king will find him and they will see him as he is. I think of how many people, whatever the first century equivalent was, of saw Mary pushing Jesus down the street in a stroller or saw her carrying him into a store while she was doing shopping um, and might have just thought, okay, another mother with a child. And they didn't realize that what was passing them was, was the king of glory. The savior of the world, God in the flesh. You can see him and not see him. People saw him and didn't understand what they were seeing. People saw him when he grew up and talked to him and didn't understand who they were talking to. Um, But these men know, they see, that's a gift. It's a gift that God gives 
to be able to see Jesus for who he is. Um, and that's the second promise that's made. Those who seek him will find him and they'll see him as he is. They'll see him as Savior and Lord. And how can you respond but to worship one you see as Savior and Lord? And they lay out for him all of these precious gifts. Um, now, it's been popular in the history of interpretation for people to spin these different gifts. You know, gold as to his royalty, uh, frankincense as to um, his divinity, uh, myrrh as to his mortality. Um, that kind of sounds nice. It's almost certainly not what Matthew intended us to take from this. Matthew simply wants us to see they gave him the gifts that are worthy of a king. They poured out before this baby the great treasures of the East, gifts that were worthy for a king. Um, they worshiped him as befit his status. And that's really what we need to do if we want to honor the king. We need to worship him, see him for who he is, and then worship him with worship that's fitting for this kind of king. Um, and we've been, there's even Christmas songs that say, what, what can we give him? What, what can we give him that would be worth who he is? And well, the Bible tells us what we can give him. Paul says in Romans 12:1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does the king of all deserve from us? Our all. All that we are, all that we have. That's a gift that's worthy of the king. That's the worship that he's due. It's not to purchase anything from him. But somehow if we give our all, then we've, we've deserved something from him. No, we give him our all because he's worthy of it. It's because that's the kind of gift you give to this kind of king who comes to shepherd us in his strength and to give us justice and to give us peace. That's the kind of king who we all should seek and who promises those who seek me, find me and have life in my name. So I hope that all here who are confronted with this king will greet him not with hostility or apathy, but with fealty, the faithfulness that's due his name. That you would all seek the king in faith and find him and see him for who he is and worship him as he deserves, for he is worthy. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the announcement that was so clearly made in the world of his birth and so clearly portrayed and revealed to us in your word. We thank you for those first worshipers who came seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that they came from the east, from outside the covenant community, reminding us that the king of Israel is also the king of all who would seek him and that he's building his kingdom from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So we thank you for this first reminder of the great harvest of the ends of the earth that came to Christ and is still coming to Christ. We pray you continue to build that kingdom in glory and that you hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.